This is an ABC podcast. The wastelands of our largest cities are often secrets hidden in plain sight, where life can be left to rot like yesterday's trash. Someone call the coppers! Someone! Elsie's in a bad way! no-go zones, fenced-off areas that we've despoiled and turned our backs on. Uh, an article in the Herald in 1953 describing... It's supposed to have track awareness. Oh, sorry. It's, it's a private site. Okay. It's Vic Track. Vic Track. It's government. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. And you have to have track awareness okay. and you have to be wearing vests and stuff. Oh, okay, fine. No Today, we're headed to a site on the western edge of Melbourne CBD, riddled with ports, roads, railways, rivers and other murky waterways. It's a four-kilometre-wide wedge between the city and the inner western suburbs. Underneath here, whenever they do anything, they hit water straight away. So it's continually sinking. At the time of European settlement, it was a lush wetland dominated by a stunning blue saltwater lake, later known as Batman's or the West Melbourne Swamp. It was supposed to have been fantastic. No, oh, it was the, it's... like paradise. I love it paradise. But by the mid-20th century, the swamp had been reclaimed and its waters drained. It became notorious for its stinking rubbish tips and the shanty town called Dudley Flats that took root in them. Writer David Sornig has been walking the area looking for forgotten remnants of the shanty town, reimagining its residents and the wetlands lost Blue Lake. Let's fall in step with him. If you're from Melbourne's west, you'll know the strange blind spot that runs from the Maribyrnong River to Docklands. I have really clear memories of passing through it on a train as a child feeling just how disconnected and confusing it was. But I never knew why. It was only a few years ago that I heard of the Dudley Flat shantytown and the lost wetland. When I spoke to people about them, barely any of them had heard of these places. No one could find them on a map. If they have any reality left today, it's in fragments and recovering that reality needs something more than just picking up what's on the surface. It was beautiful, really lovely. It was all sandy and blue. Phyllis McIlvaney lived across the road from the tips in the 1930s and 40s. And the big boats used to come to see docks. There were no fences then. No fences, there was no fences. The path she's remembering once passed through the tips toward an unlikely beach. This is where a couple of times we passed where you could see where the people were living. And you would see some of the shanties because that's, that's right, exactly... That's right, that's right, that's right. The Dudley Flats shanty town appeared around the tips after the economic shock of the Great Depression. Its first residents were people who'd been shaken out of their jobs and homes. Without rent to pay, they made ends meet by fossicking through the rubbish. I only 
I remember that Mum said I was never, never to go there, never to go anywhere near there, never to go anywhere near the tip. But I, I'd never sort of seen Shanty Town, but I'd heard so much. It was a, a derelict place where all the, the no-gooders lived. <laughs> Down there, I've walked overland looking for another view of the Dudley Flat site many times, but I've never come by boat. The one expression I can remember, you don't go down to Dudley Flats because you're likely to be kidnapped family or pincher. Now, it's Peter Somerville, OAMKSJ, Citizen of the Year for 2010. Ready to go down? It's the long way there, along the Maribyrnong River and around the container port. But even from the water, it's hard to see exactly how the past maps onto the present. Docks have been carved out of the land. The Yarra River's been rerouted. The creek has silted up and shape-shifted. So you would have, no doubt, part of Dudley Flats yep. on both sides of the creek. Yes, yes. So a bit of it would be down here, where it came What's left the of the people here. who lived here really only floats in on a few memories, some second-hand stories and a mess of documents. These people become vivid to us when we listen closely to the few words they left behind. And so this old uh, schooner called the John Hunt was stranded over there. Yeah, because that was a big mud flat. Yeah. Yeah. And they used to bring vessels up and break them up there. And he was told to tie his, his ship there in the after the First World War. He was, was German and he was interned mm-hmm. and then he went back to it and he stayed there and they said, move on. He said, no, I'm not moving on. He was going to put a mining claim in. Mm-hmm. And um, so he stayed there. They, they, they filled up the old Yarra and he, he was stuck. I was stuck. I had heard of this German man. I had heard of him but I'd never seen him, and we called him German George. German George? Yeah. At times he was called Bob the German. Bob the German. German George. German George. Was Lauder Rog. Lauder Rogge. A hermit who lived on the hulk of his ship, the John Hunt. The former blackbirding schooner was stranded in the mud between Coot Island and Dudley Flats. Phyllis remembers him from the late 1930s, when he'd already been living there for more than 20 years. Well, I'll have to unhook and uh, do some work. Lauda arrived in Australia in 1900. In the years up to the First World War, he lived and worked on the waterways of Melbourne's ports. 6 June 1918. The Minister is approved of the above-named being interned at the Commonwealth of Australia concentration camp, Liverpool. Even though he'd become a naturalised Australian, Lauder found himself coming under suspicion from military intelligence. They called him a marvellous man in handling craft and thought him capable of being dangerous. Capable of being dangerous. 
When I came back to the John Hunt after the war, I sailed her down and, and tied her up where the Harbour Trust told me, opposite Coot Island. But she spat all the oakum from her seams. And when they filled in the channel around the island, so that the river ran only on the other side, I had to leave her there. He had a lot of dogs and we had to be very careful, you know, because I had a dog, Tony, too. And Tony, every time I went over the, to the tip, Tony came over with me and, um, you know, we had to be careful in case Tony got caught up with all those dogs. And they were very savage, very savage dogs. Lauda kept at least 60 dogs in his Coot Island compound. Many of them were starving. I sailed all over the world when I was young. I'm no good to go to sea again. The Victorian Society for the Protection of Animals intervened in 1936. They laid baits and poisoned my dogs. They tell me, you have too many dogs. You should get rid of them. How can I? They are like my children. Lauda was allowed to keep one as his companion. The rest were destroyed. In 1938, he was threatened by arsonists and set a firebreak around the ship. But in the hot wind, the fire took hold of the Hulk. Now I have no clothes except these I'm wearing and I must sleep in the tin shed I used for the dogs. There is not enough kindness in people. I am a man without a country. Ich bin ein Mann ohne Heimat. I'm Gary Vines, I'm um, an archaeologist and historian. So as an archaeologist, I, I try and imagine the stratigraphy below us and the layers of fill and excavation and disturbance that's gone on. Gary's walking with me around the back of the Docklands Entertainment District, the most recent reinvention of this part of Melbourne. So we're just about on the southern edge of Batman Swamp. Early Melbourne sewage drained directly into the swamp. It only took about 10 years for, um, for Batman Swamp to turn from this blue lake into a, a fetid swamp. And that layer's preserved. So I, I think I'm the only person around who's actually seen Batman Swamp because I've seen this layer of black gooey stuff that's underneath us everywhere. Gary's archaeological work during the construction of the CityLink freeway in 1999 took him deep under today's surface of landfill and swamp reclamation. I look out for things that are out of place and it's, it's sort of one of the, the physical signs of human activity is when you see something that doesn't belong there. As you move west across the swamp, you go from um, glass and ceramics from the mid-19th century and organic remains and get into some of the more toxic stuff from the, um, the desiccators and the incinerators and the, um, the chemical and industrial waste that was being dumped in and into the first of the plastics. So we've come more or less to the, well, the rear of the Dockland Studios and we are looking for something that might resemble 
the side of Dudley Flats? Well, I, I think we're about there. I, I, I reckon this is about the point, which is the um, the edge of the landfill from about the 19, um, 1910s to 1930s. And then in the Depression, the rubbish tips became the livelihood of a group of people who were scavenging off the tip. What I was hoping for is to find some evidence of that. Evidence of the humpies that had been built out of rubbish from the tip. And when they were pulled down, and mostly they were demolished on purpose by one or other government department, they were just flattened, went back into the same pile of rubbish they were built on, and then more rubbish came in and piled up on top of them. So what we're looking for is this sort of layer of slightly different deposited rubbish between two other layers. Death notices. 8th April 1915. Peacock, Lillian Rosalind. The loved wife of Jack Peacock. Fond mother of Doris and Jackie. Aged 25. My feeling is that he was a victim of circumstance with the loss of his, the death of his wife at a very uh, reasonably young age, and she was very young also. I'm Lindsay Peacock, and I'm the grandson of Jack Peacock, the King of Dudley Flats. After his wife Lily's death, Jack Peacock scavenged the tips and taught horse riding from his rough shacks in and around Dudley Flats for almost 30 years. He persisted, even when others had moved on or died. Classified ads. Apply to Jack Peacock. Rear City Council Storeyard Tip. Dining Road, West Melbourne. 400 feet of wire cable rope. Straw and One of the stories my father told me was that he always carried a bank book wherever he went that had uh, at least a minimum of 10 pounds in it so as the police couldn't lock him up for vagrancy. Girls, don't be a bride. Be a buck jump circus rider. Lessons given in rough, flat steeplechase riding. Hall of Fame riding school. You'd never met him, had you? No, no, I hadn't, and, uh, and and I suspect quite strongly that my father was shielding me from any contact with Jack Senior because of his lifestyle, of which he was quite ashamed. Given the time, even though he was a wharfie, I'd describe us as comfortable middle-middle class, he still had those hang-ups about uh, his father's living on the tip and, uh, and being virtually uh, a manure carter and, and, and a lowly um, member of uh, the lower strata of society. Wagon, pony, harness, nine pounds, the lot. This life suits me and it is only the mental weaklings who desire to remove me. Men of education would allow me to remain. These are Jack Peacock's words addressed to a lands department inspector. The department tried and failed to move him out of Dudley Flats in the mid-1940s. I remain yours, Jack Peacock. <laughs> Respectfully <laughs> yours perhaps could have been that. <laughs> the other thing was the watch, the, the fob watch. The watch was the last item listed in the inventory of Jack's possessions which was a very nondescript fob watch that my father took to a jeweller and had fully restored and gave to me. It was valued at two shillings. Get away, you small boys, will you? Keep off. 
that rubbish cart of mine. Perhaps you don't know me, the papers don't show me, ain't never adorned the front page. Obviously to a lot of people he'd be a, a deadbeat and uh, and, and a, a ne'er-do-well, but uh, I, I see him in heroic uh, proportion. I think we, uh, the Australian ethos uh, always accepts people who act outside of the, the norm in a, in a positive way, and I see him as succeeding at a time when a lot of people who were a lot more comfortable and a lot smarter went under and went by the by, jumped out of windows. He carved a little niche for himself that kept him going for, for two decades on what was uh, a rubbish tip. Dudley Flats. The authorities moved in to knock down the last of the permanent shanties in the early 1940s. The remains of the shacks were burned or buried in the tip. But I'm Malcolm McMudley, the dud of the Dudleys, the dud king of all Dudley Flats. Good morning, City Council. I hope your rubbish is clean. The lady next door, Mrs. Baker, she lived in number two, Lloyd Street. Lloyd Street in South Kensington practically neighboured the tip and Dudley Flats. Uh, Mrs. Baker knew Black Elsie very well. She said she was a lovely woman. She said she was very well educated, very clever, and had a beautiful voice. And as a matter of fact, she, no, she had nothing but praise for her. Elsie Williams lived a precarious and volatile life in the shacks of Dudley Flats through the 1930s and early 1940s. You are charged with having used indecent language in the watch house in the hearing of persons passing by. Elsie Williams, have you anything to say? Elsie was born in the central Victorian town of Bendigo in 1901 to Afro-Caribbean parents. He leads Black Elsie. He leads my mother. He leads Black Elsie. Oh, nothing will break my spirit. It was the same year that the new nation barred anyone of her colour from immigrating. All the way, all the way from earth to heaven, let Jesus lead me. All the way, all the way, he leads black Elsie's childhood was blighted by the early death of her mother, mother and by the loss of the family home to a fire. But Elsie was ambitious. She became a forthright and determined young woman, and her singing voice was striking. It was Sunday morning when we went down to the tip. We met up with the girls, and we all decided to go down the tip. Mum was all busy, you know, she didn't know where we were. Just, there was only four of us. The tip was a nuisance. It smelled, it was rat infested, and smoke from the always burning tip faces drifted across the surrounding neighbourhoods. But to the local children, it was a playground full of treasures. And round about here was this woman. 
She was right in the middle of it, lying on there. And, and she was crying and she looked very tiny, very tiny. And well, she was in a terrible mess. And I realised that it was Black Elsie. But I was still, still scared of her because Mum said she had a razor, not a razor blade, a razor in her stocking. She carried and she'd slash her face to ribbons. Well, Mum said that she'd done it to a tram conductor because he dare ask her for her affair. So she slashed his neck and his face as well and, and his ear. And Mum said, you ever go see that woman, you just run, just run because she's a wicked, wicked boy. Life upon the wicked stage ain't ever what a girl supposes. Stage door Johnny's aren't raging over you with gems and roses. I know I can do better even though I never had a chance. I know I can do better, why can't you remember? Is it customary for you to lose your memory every time you've had a few drinks? Through the 1920s, Elsie took her talent across the country, performing popular slave spirituals with the Fisk Jubilee Singers. By the end of the decade, she was on the Melbourne stage in Showboat. But by then, she was already drinking heavily and was in trouble with the law. She was becoming unmoored. <laughs> Snowflake was just the opposite of my colour. <laughs> like any person, Elsie was a cauldron of feeling and experience. She didn't fit into any neat compartment. I am Elsie, Elsie Williams, Josie Snowflake, lovely sight. I appear to be a vagrant. I will appeal all the way. But her violent boilovers were often attributed to race. If I had a razor, I would cut you to pieces. At her final trial in 1939, Judge Richardson wondered if she was Aboriginal. He thought she was subject to temptations and passions rather different from those ordinarily affecting white people. I had a razor, yes. Oh, you liar. I had a razor all the way. I would ask you, please be lenient. Be as lenient as you can. In the first half of the 20th century, Melbourne could only contain Elsie in prison or abandon her to the unruly territory of Dudley Flats. 
she said she was starving. She hadn't eaten anything. She wanted something to drink. And could they help her? She was sort of crying softly and she was very softly spoken. And she just said, my man punched me, punched me into the fire. The girls were saying, what could they do to help her? You know, and she said, the rats came and had bitten her. Her skin looked grey, not not black, just grey because oh, I think it was the dust from the um, fire. She was very badly burned, very badly burned. So she must have been there perhaps for quite some time already. Looks as if she'd rolled in it. I think probably on the top, he knocked her on the top of the hill probably and she'd rolled down because the further you got down, the worse was the fire. My man, he punched me, punched me into the fire. Someone call the coppers! Someone! Elsie's in a bad way! She said, um, she just said, can you help me, girls? Can you get me some help? And, uh, but I, 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 I took off. <laughs> but you did go back later. I did, yes. I went out to the round to the girls' place and they, they were back and they said no, they couldn't find her. Let Jesus lead me. This blue lake, as you call it, it was black. The blue lake was black. <laughs> it, it, it was, everything had rotted away because the, the fire kept burning on the tip and the ground used to be like hard crust. And yet if you stood on it, you'd sink into, into, into coals, red hot coals. Red hot coals. Blue lake Where is it you lie? Well, I have to use my imagination. Archaeologists are, are not supposed to. They're supposed to deal with the evidence and the facts. But in a way, we can't really make sense of those in a way that other people can understand unless we put this imaginative story around it. Whatever remains of this place, the idyllic and the ugly, the swamp and the shanty town, the shame and the survival, is in pieces. It's buried in the ground, in archives and in memories. But from where, where we are, just on the edge of the swamp, we would have been able to look across here and have this huge big expanse of water, probably shimmering in the sunlight on a day like this, um, covered in birds. The, the, we know that wherever there was water, it was always absolutely uh, packed with wildlife. So the views would have been incredible from, from early Melbourne. You can assemble the fragments, but you still need to imagine them into being. So the bits I've picked up are some probably 1920s, 30s, bit of a sort of art deco pattern. Imagination 
is a fragile and imprecise tool. The reality it makes only lasts as long as the attention you devote to it. So the glass could be anything from like 1910 to even 1970s. You know, it took a while for them to come up with uh, chemistry to produce decent clear glass. The darker the glass, the older it tends to be. And uh, it, it's just a sign of not being able to get the impurities out of it most of the time. And you can never really be sure of the clarity of your gaze. was written and produced by David Sornig, Cynthia Troop and Miyuki Okiranta. The sound engineer was Tim Simons. This program was an adaptation of David's book, Blue Lake, Finding Dudley Flats and the West Melbourne Swamp. Elsie was played by Zara Newman, Louder was played by Adrian Plitzko, and score by the Orb Weavers, Marita Dyson and Stuart Flanagan. Head to our website for more details on the book, photos of Dudley Flats and its inhabitants, and to find out why the Blue Lake was so blue. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for your company on the History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.